unlike Caleb, uh, my allergies are just fine this morning, so if I break down in tears, it's really because I'm overwhelmed by the goodness of our God. Man, I hope I stay this way. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can take them out and turn them to Acts 21. We'll be covering verses 17 through 36 as we continue making our way through this book. Last week, we looked at Paul's journey to Jerusalem. We saw from the text that God's Spirit was leading him there and that he wouldn't be stopped. He was staying the course, even when cautioned over and over again that uh, things awaited him, dangerous things awaited him, imprisonment awaited him. And what we took away was that he wasn't just continually driven to Jerusalem because he was a madman, uh, like some thought, rather... He counted the cost, and he found that Christ and his glory was worth more than his comfort or security. And so this week's text covers Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. So if you've got your Bibles, let's read together in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent out a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city stirred up, was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him. And ordered him to be bound with two chains. 
He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the time uh, that we get to spend every week in your word. Uh, God, we know that this isn't um, some stale lesson, but this is the living and active word of our God to his people in order to transform us into the image of Jesus. And so, God, I pray that by your word this morning, you would powerfully empower those sitting in this congregation who are yours to walk in faith. And God, I also pray for those who are not yours sitting here today that you would use your powerful word just like you've done in Caleb's life to change them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we know from verses 16 and 15 of last week's text that Paul stayed in with Manansen and the next morning uh, he got up and went to meet with James and the elders. Uh, James and the elders uh, are the pastors uh, of the Jerusalem church. We're told that Paul is well received by James and the elders and Luke records this. He says, Paul tells them one by one. All that God has done. Now notice he doesn't just write, uh, Paul told it, Paul told us all that God had done. No, he writes specifically, he told us one by one, all that God had done. What Luke meant here is that Paul went into detail. Paul went through all the moments and miracles and movements that he had seen God make among the Gentiles, among the people. And we don't want to skip past this part, this uh, seemingly insignificant phrase, uh, because it has some significance for us. You know, oftentimes we pray and ask God to work and move in people's hearts. We pray for fruit in ministry. We pray that God would bring forth repentance. We plead with God to cause revival. And many times when God is faithful to do what we've asked him to do, we just move on. We might give a little praise hands emoji, but then what what happens is we just continue on with our busy lives. But that's not what happens here. When Paul gets together with James and the elders, they don't run past the miraculous work of ministry in order to get to more important issues. Rather, Paul recounts for them one by one all that he's seen God do. We're not told this, but... They might have had to break for lunch in order to hear it all. Come back in the afternoon and continue hearing all that God has done. How long would it have taken for Paul to tell James and the elders all that God has done? When I lived in Richmond, uh, I worked for the IMB. The International Mission Board is the largest missions agency in the history of the world. 40,000 Southern Baptist churches pool their money together and send Uh, more than 5,000 missionaries all over the globe who they fully fund, pay every dime for everything for. But one of the tendencies that I noticed in our home office where about 250 people worked 
is we would often pass over all the glorious stories from the field in order to give our attention to more administrative matters. The internal organizational struggle that this caused is best understood in a question that I often found myself asking while I was there. Here's the question. Are we a business or are we a ministry? Now, technically, according to the government, any organization like IMB or local church is considered a nonprofit ministry. But I'm not so concerned with the technical label as I am with the function. The better question is, do we function like a ministry that has business or do we function like a business that has ministry? You see the difference? This is a very fine line we at Grace Fellowship always need to be aware of, especially as God continues to bless us with growth. I mean, if you look around this morning, there's uh, growing not many places to sit, and there's talks of expansion, and we just have to continue asking questions like, do we prioritize plans or people? Do we value buildings or relationships? Do we focus on money or marital issues? Do we get more caught up with budgets or sin in the body? Now I realize I'm asking all these questions in an unfair manner because plans, buildings, monies, and budgets are important. But as we continue on as a church, we must make sure that we are always valuing what God values, knowing that we have a tendency, church, to overvalue temporary matters above eternal ones. I mean, just think in this text how much Paul had going on. He traveled quite a bit, caught several different ships, and along the way to get to Jerusalem had been told by many people, imprisonment awaits you, trouble awaits you, your life might be over. And upon arrival, that's not what he chose to talk to James and the elders about. Hey, have you guys heard the rumors? Hey, do I need to keep my head low? Hey, what do I need to do and not to be found out? No. He talks to them about all that God has done. <laughs> because when your hope is in Christ alone, your focus is on what Christ is doing. You get that? Your focus is on what Christ is doing. Now, after glorifying God for all that he done, we see James share with Paul and his crew that God had also been at work uh, in Jerusalem. James shared with Paul and them all uh, that God was doing in Jerusalem and how he had been at work. James says that the thousands of Jews had believed. This was a big deal. But he follows this statement up saying that they are all zealous for the law. Zealous for the law. Now, what does this mean? Uh, what James means here is that they still hold the Mosaic system in very high regard. While they trust in Jesus as their Messiah, they don't see that this relaxes or loosens any of their standards as Jews. Now we know back in the book of Acts, this has already been a struggle. This is kind of the theme through Acts. An obvious instance we can recall of this struggle is back in Acts 10. When Peter had a vision with all the unclean animals coming down on a sheet, remember this? And God tells Peter, what? Rise, kill, and eat. 
And Peter says, what? No, no, Lord, I won't ever do that. Why does he say that? Because he's zealous for the law. But Jesus reminds Peter that he is Lord, and he needs to do whatever he tells him to do. And this makes more sense to Peter as he is immediately taken by a couple of men that are knocking on his door at the same time uh, over to uh, the centurion named Cornelius, a Roman, who wanted to eat with Peter. Something also a Jew was forbidden to do. So here, Peter broke the customs and traditions that he was so zealous for. And why did he do it? Because Jesus had fulfilled the Mosaic law and was now uniting all people to himself as a new race. A royal priesthood that would encompass a people from all ethne people groups. But the issue in Jerusalem is that most of these Jews had not understood Jesus' work to the extent that Peter and Paul understood it. Therefore, there was widespread confusion. So in verse 21, we see James deliver to Paul the accusation that is currently in the rumor mill. He says that these Jews who are zealous for the law have now been told, or have been told, that you are teaching the Jews who live amongst the Gentiles to forsake Moses. You're telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. So we ask the question, is this true? Is this accusation true? It's actually hard to say. We first have to ask the question of what is he talking about when he says forsake Moses, circumcision and customs. Most commentators believe that he's not talking about the moral law. They would say that James and Paul understood, agreed, that moral law, never changing. But what is in view here is all of the stuff that was um, specific to national Jews. So then, did Paul, as a Jew amongst Gentiles, forsake Moses' circumcision and the customs? Yes, he did. Yeah, Paul saw these customs as having served their purpose for the Jewish people until the Christ had come. But now that Jesus had come and was bringing together peoples from all ethne into one royal race, these things weren't necessary. And this doesn't mean that Paul was telling them, telling the Jews to not absolutely not take part in any of these things. In fact, he said the opposite. Look at, or you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says this. Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision nor uh, uncircumcision counts for anything but keeping the commandments of God, moral law. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So that's what Paul taught. Now listen to what Paul himself did in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. You see his motivation? To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those being under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law so that I might win those outside to the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save 
some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, our first inclination upon reading something like that, that Paul says, this is how I act, uh, is to call him a hypocrite and a compromiser, which is exactly what the Jews in Jerusalem were told about him. In fact, the word forsake here in the text is actually the word for apostasy or apostate. They thought Paul was apostate because he had forsaken what was so precious to them. But he wasn't. He wasn't an apostate. Rather, he understood his context. He knew that a Jewish context would struggle with someone eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. So he didn't want to do that, and he actually told others not to do that. He knew that Jews would struggle with Timothy leading them if he wasn't circumcised. So what did he do? He got Timothy circumcised. Paul was willing to do whatever he needed to do in order that people could hear clearly the good news of Jesus as long as his actions weren't contrary to the gospel. And this is important for us, church. If we are not constantly pushing the boundaries by asking the question of what is the best way to right now, the best way right now to get the gospel to those who have yet to hear it, then we might not be as faithful as we think we are. And take note, we must never do anything that's contrary to the gospel, but I do fear that all too often, in the name of faithfulness, we refuse to do certain things that make us feel uncomfortable. So James and the elders tell Paul, do what we say in verse 23. They tell him to purify himself and pay for four other men to do the same. This would have been normal Jewish custom since he had been to Gentile lands. He would need a seven-day purification before entering the temple. So we got to ask the question, did Paul think he needed this purification? No. No, he didn't think he needed the purification. He knew that Jesus had purified him completely with his blood. He was now clean because of the word that Jesus had spoken to him. So then why does Paul submit and take part in the custom? Because when your hope is in Christ alone, you will desire to give up your rights and your comforts in order to reach others with the gospel. <laughs> that's, that's it. And Paul was willing to do that. We're then told after these seven days, Paul heads into the temple and this is where things pop off. The scriptures say in verse 27 that the Jews from Asia see him and begin the stirring. Now don't miss this. These are the Jews from Asia. More than likely, this would have been the Jews that chased him out of Iconium and out of Lystra. These were some bad dudes. And now they're in Jerusalem again for Pentecost, stirring up, stirring up trouble. They hurl an accusation at Paul, and this is where we're going to settle in the text for a while. They say that this man is leading people everywhere against the people, the law, and the temple. Now, we're going to zoom in on those three things, the people, the law, and the temple, because they will tell us a lot about the heart of these Jews, and I'm hoping, church, they will reveal quite a bit about our own hearts. First, the people. The Jewish people were chosen by God in a unique way for a unique purpose. 
Paul says in Romans 10 that they are Israelites and them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So the Jewish people are a unique people, but, but, they had forgotten why God chose them. In Genesis 12, this is God's promise to Abraham when he told him to leave his country. He says to Abraham, I will make a great nation of you. And I will bless you and make your name great so that it is a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Don't miss this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God had uniquely chosen Abraham who would have a son named Isaac who would then have a son named Jacob, who would later be called Israel, who would have 12 sons, who would become known as tribes, known as the Jewish people. And he had chosen these people, these specific people, in order that through them, the whole world would know their God. (laughs) And how would the whole world know their God? Because out of the tribe of Judah, a line would be born. And this line would be named Jesus. And he would conquer sin and death and Satan. And this line would make all things new. But here's the sad part. It's obvious that the Jewish people missed this. They had become so proud in and of themselves and thought it was their Jewishness that made them right with God. Paul would later write in Philippians 3, 3 through 7, he says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put absolutely no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Church, when we hope in Christ alone, we will put no confidence in our flesh. Secondly was the law. The law had been given to Moses 430 years after the promise to Abraham that we just talked about. God's people sought to obey the law just as God had told them to. God always made it clear to his people that righteousness did not come from obedience to the law. Listen to what Paul says about the law in Galatians 3, 23 through 27. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What Paul puts forward here is that the law was the Jewish people guardian Until Jesus came. But now that he's come, it's no longer needed. 
So in order to understand this idea of guardian, like when I say that word, I know that that brings up things in our English minds, but I want you to actually understand the original word. This is massive significance once you understand this. So I took some stuff from Ligonier Ministries, and I'm just going to read it to you. Listen to this about the word guardian. In ancient Rome, the patagogus, that's the Greek word for guardian that's used here, was a slave entrusted with the care of another's child when the child reached age six. The child turns age six, he gets a patagogus. And the patagogus would be with the child until he reached adolescence. The patagogus was like a nanny who watched over the child and ensured that he made it to and from school. The patagogus was not a professional teacher, but he did serve as a tutor who at home reviewed the child with the child, the material learned in the classroom. Additionally, the pedagogus was the child's main disciplinarian. He corrected bad manners, helped those in charge learn etiquette. Depending on the individual, a pedagogus might discipline the child harshly with cannings and whippings or with greater tenderness and care. Some children hated their pedagogus. Others formed a strong, lifelong bond with him. But this background enriches our understanding of the purpose of the law and why it is no longer the defining principle of the life in the life for the believer. If the Mosaic law is like a pedagogus, then by definition it was not a permanent guardian, since the job of the pedagogus was over when the child was grown up. Though the believing community learned much from the law, just as a child learned manners from his pedagogus, the law had the more important job of taking us to school, of leading us. I want you to get this of leading us to Christ who alone unfolds the depths of God's will for us. You see that? The grave error that the Jewish people had made was not understanding that the law of God was leading them to a Savior. And this is still a problem today, right? More than not, when I've asked people on planes and at gyms and next-door neighbors what the gospel is, they point me to a list of rules like the Ten Commandments. They say, well, this is what we got to uphold. This is what we got to do. But I then have to tell them that the word gospel literally means good news. And the idea that we have to uphold a list of rules to be saved is actually not good news at all. Why? Because we can't do it. The gospel that Paul is preaching is that Jesus has come and he has kept all of the rules. He's done it perfectly. And church, he's done it on our behalf. When we hope in Christ alone, we stand righteous before God. That's good news. (laughs) That's really good news. And when Jesus grants repentance and gives faith to someone, he places his spirit in them and thus causes them to walk in his statutes. And they do this because they become one with Christ. Not because they're trying to gain righteousness or measure up lest they not make it to heaven. So had Paul taught people against the law? No. But it definitely seemed that way for those who were hoping in the law for their salvation and righteousness. Lastly, 
The temple was an incredibly important pillar in the Jewish life. The temple was where the presence of God remained. This began with Moses and the tabernacle. The mercy seat was where blood would be spilt as animals were sacrificed. And it was the blood of animals that God called his people to sacrifice, sacrifice before him to cover over their sin. Every time an animal was sacrificed and blood was shed, it would be a reminder about the seriousness of sin. The wages of sin is, however, what many Jewish people missed in the sacrifice was the substitutionary nature of it. God never commanded that sinners be sacrificed. It was always another life given to cover over personal sin. So sacrifice was a huge part of the Jewish temple, but not the only part. The Jewish temple was complicated. It had many layers or courts to it. One court allowed Gentiles to come in and offer prayers. Another court was for Jews only. And this is the court in our text that Paul is accused of taking Trophimus the Greek into. But this was a lie. Paul did not do this. Paul knew the temple rules were very serious. So serious that bringing a Gentile into the Jewish court was punishable by immediate death on the spot. But as important as the temple was for Jewish worship, the Jewish people had missed the significance, the true significance of the temple. The temple in itself was a pointer. A pointer to the true and living presence of God. Jesus says in John 2, when asked by the Jews for a sign, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about what? The temple of his body. <laughs> Jesus was the temple of God. And now in the book of Acts, Jesus' presence, his very own spirit, lives in all the redeemed. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And church, you are that temple. Paul knew that the old brick and mortar temple was no longer significant. Matthew records in his gospel that at Christ's death, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Aaron talked about this curtain just a few weeks ago. It was a massive curtain that signified separation from the people and God's presence. But now at the finished work of Jesus, church, there's no more separation. God had removed the enmity between himself and all those who believe in Jesus. But these people didn't want to hear this. They didn't want to hear it. And when we read right now today... As 21st century listeners and readers, we have to think, like, I just rack my brain and go, well, why couldn't they understand? Well, why were their hearts not softened to this glorious message? And the answer is because they thought they could save themselves. 
And what they actually didn't realize was by trying to save themselves, they were cutting themselves off from receiving the salvation that God had provided for them. Paul says this about them in Romans 10, 2 through 4. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law to righteousness, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Church, when we hope in Christ alone, we will receive his sacrifice and we will not try and make our own. So after accusing him of all three of these things that we just went through, the people, the law, and the temple, they would then rush Paul out of the temple and shut the gate. They would shut the gate, Luke says. And this is significant as this is precisely how they treated Jesus, the Son of God. And this act, what they're doing, was the public display of Israel's rejection of the gospel. They had rejected the Messiah, their Messiah, when they had Jesus crucified. And yet, this is, what's, this is what blows my mind about our God. Our God loves them so much that even after rejecting Christ, he sends Paul back to them with the good news of the gospel. But they reject him as well. From this point on in the book of Acts, the gospel will now begin moving toward Rome. Israel has rejected her Messiah and her messengers, God's messengers. Now I want you to know that what we've seen in our text today is still happening. We still have many people possibly sitting here this morning in this room who are hoping in a whole bunch of stuff. People who are rejecting the righteousness of God by hoping and seeking to establish their own way. And they're doing this by avid church attendance. What? They're, what? They're, they're rejecting the righteousness of God with their avid church attendance? Yeah. Yeah, they're rejecting the righteousness of God with their daily quiet times. They're rejecting the righteousness of God by their giving to the church, by their serving in the church, by their doing good in the community. Now this may seem really confusing to some of you because immediately you think, aren't these the things that we are supposed to be doing as Christians? And the answer is yes, but the key is from the right motivation. Just as we heard in Caleb's testimony this morning, being in church your whole life and doing all the right things isn't enough. It's not enough. It won't ever be enough. Which is precisely why God had to send his son Jesus to live the life we couldn't live and die in our place. And I know that there are plenty of people who would profess that this morning, who would say, oh yes, I know his, his, his finished cross work is, is for my salvation, that I may be saved. But then you would go on to say, and now that God has saved me, 
I must do what is right. Again, wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me now ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? And the answer is no. We don't start by faith in God and we're saved and then we work it out in the flesh. While many Jews in Jerusalem had been convinced by the undeniable evidence that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, they still lacked understanding in what he had accomplished. Many were of the thought that they needed to continue in the Mosaic Law, continue in the works of the law to become perfected. And Paul says, no, no. This isn't how you grow spiritually. God has given you his very own spirit. You grow, church, by hoping in Christ alone. You're saved by hoping in Christ alone. You continue to grow by hoping in Christ alone. You see, holiness wrongly understood in the Mosaic system was manageable. People really liked knowing what kind of price needed to be paid for certain sins. Or what vow needed to be taken during which months. But this isn't holiness, it's legalism. Paul knew that if the Jewish people continued to rely on the law and these customs, they they would not only miss holiness, but they would miss salvation which is by faith in Jesus' finished work. So let me recap all that I've stated for you this morning as I close. When your hope is in Christ alone, your focus is on what Christ is doing. When your hope is in Christ alone, you will desire to give up your rights and comforts in order to reach others with the gospel. When your hope is in Christ alone, You will put no confidence in your flesh. When you hope in Christ alone, you stand righteous before God. And when you hope in Christ alone, you will continually, all of your life, receive his sacrifice and not try to make your own. As the Jews from Asia heard what Paul was teaching Jews in Gentile lands, they were infuriated. They hated Paul and wanted him killed. This gospel that he was preaching did, in fact, turn people away from hoping in the Jews and the law and the temple, but only in order to turn them to hoping in Christ alone. So my plea with you this morning, church, is to turn away from anything, anything that you are hoping in, if it's not Jesus. And remember, as you encourage others to sell out for Jesus and place their hope in him alone, you will be hated by those who place their hope in other things. Carlton's going to come now and uh, lead us in a response, and, and I think we have some other stuff, right? Presented to you 
and it demands a response from you. 